Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. First off, uh, before we get to today's episode, I'm I'm not okay. Uh, if you followed and listened to this podcast, you probably know that not only am I Jewish, I have Israeli family on both sides, and I love being Jewish and our culture with all my being. Following last week's horrific attack by Hamas, a terrorist organization in Israel, on innocent civilians. To be honest, it's hard to think about anything else. Thankfully, our families in Israel are safe. Uh, With every morsel of my being, I condemn Hamas, and I stand firmly with my Jewish brothers and sisters in Israel and in the diaspora. I pray for peace. I pray for love. I pray for humanity, and I pray that the good of humanity will prevail. So with that, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I am your host, Robert Kraft. I do thank you all so much for the support, uh, for everything, and for tuning in. And do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear here at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engine so that more folks can also discover and engage with all things microcap stocks. Uh, Next up is the Planet Microcap Showcase Vegas. Uh, That's happening April 30 through May 2nd, 2024 at the Paris Hotel and Casino. Save the date. We are working our tail off behind the scenes to put together the best program that we can. Some really, really cool conversations with some incredible thought leaders. The website is now live. And if you'd like to register to participate, please visit planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. My guest on the show today is David Bastian, Chief Investment Officer at Kingdom Capital Advisors. I met David at Ian Castle's Microcap Leadership Summit a couple of weeks ago, where he brought the house down with his comical, albeit serious, uh, pitch on the Children's Place, a publicly traded company. The symbol is PLCE. Safe to say, David was tailor-made to be a great guest on my podcast, and he does not disappoint. In our conversation, we talk about quirky, off-the-beaten-path investing, what that means, understanding when to make your move when assessing these quirky stocks, and quick pitches on The Children's Place and National Cinemedia. Thank you again for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with David Bastian. David, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing, man? Doing well. Thanks for having me on, Bobby. Absolutely. It's great to have you. I mean, uh, you know, look, I I think I've been following you for a little bit on Twitter, but my first time meeting you or seeing you speak was uh, we were at Ian's uh, Microcap Club Investor Summit uh, or Leadership Summit, where you did, uh, you brought the house down in uh, your 10 minute pitch on a PLCE. I I think everybody collectively was like, that was, 
best pitch or not, it was just by far the most entertaining for sure. So, I mean, uh, <laughs> that I had to have you on after that, man, you know, cause that was, that was just too, that was just too good. Oh, thanks, man. That was fun. I, uh, Jones Place isn't that exciting of a business, so uh, I had to try and uh, keep the pitch a little more interesting and keep everyone's attention. So, see, I just yeah. assume that each one of your pitches were probably going to be like that, you know. Even or or like now, I just know, like, okay, if it's an exciting business, you know, that's <laughs> really really cool. Like you're just being like, yeah, you know, whatever. It's just like whatever, just scrolling at this rate, and you know, it hits all the met. Like I'm just assuming that's now the that's how you just do it from now on, right? Is that that's the thought process? <laughs> you got you got to balance excitement of business and excitement of pitch, and keep everything <laughs> equilibrium. Just not only that, keep it equilibrium, but keep people on their toes. Like, wow, I was so excited about this. He's pitching this, and he doesn't sound that stoked. Versus, like, oh, this is like kind of a boring business, but here he is, like the most excited person you've ever met in your life. Like, this is great. Uh, so I do appreciate that. But you know, um, kind of before we get into kind of the nitty gritty of like your style, all that kind of stuff. You know, for folks that you know. Don't follow you yet on uh, on Twitter or anything like that. I haven't read any of your letters. You know, love to get your background. You know, how'd you get into how'd you get in the whole game? Sure. So prior to starting Kingdom Capital, uh, I was working at uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers doing mergers and acquisitions, due diligence work. Um, so you know, essentially working in the small and mid cap space, um, helping private equity buy and sell companies. So got me pretty familiar with evaluating businesses and thinking about what are good opportunities, what aren't. Um, so I started trying to invest on the side and figure out if I could, you know, go and do that and find a way to go you know, make this work as a full-time job. And that went well. Uh, so I was able to hit escape velocity and launch uh, January of last year. So um, almost up to two years of uh, Kingdom Capital and uh, it's been a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying it and I'm glad that I get to do this full-time now. Listen, I'm glad you're having a lot of fun and starting a microcap strategy about two years ago. So that if that if that says nothing else, then you it's truly for love of the game. <laughs> it's been a bit of a bloodbath out there. Uh, <laughs> landmines everywhere. That's without question. So, you know, I, even from that experience, I mean, it's I'm sure it's clear to most like how you eventually arrive the small microcaps. But I mean, for your purposes, like, and also maybe you can explain the, the the strategy for for Kingdom Capital. You know, how did you then say like, all right, small micro, that's where we want to go? Sure. Uh, seems like you know, as you and I both know, if you're in the small microcap space, there's a lot of really bad businesses or and things you don't want to own. Um, so it is tough in that regard. Um, but I, I like the idea of looking at stuff where I had less competition and the smaller companies were generally uh, where I was seeing that. So markets are mostly rational and efficient. Um, they get inefficient with large caps. They get inefficient with small caps. But I thought I had the best chance of being able to, to find an edge on smaller stuff. Uh, I think when you get into the large caps, people at least um, have better data and have more access. And that's something you can't really get when you're starting out. Uh, as a smaller investor. So I like being able to to do a little bit more on the smaller side and, and find some weird, quirky, um, boring businesses, <laughs> depending on what we're looking at. For sure. All right. So let's, let's uh, give some of your criteria. I mean, actually, I'm going to ask you like this. I mean, prior to starting Kingdom Capital and then now two years in, you know, would you say your criteria, has your criteria changed at all from going full-time you know, full-time private investor to then launching the fund? 
Sure. I think it's, so it's an evolving process, as you know, of course. You're, you're constantly learning. Um, I would say maybe the biggest thing that's changed for me in the last couple of years has been re really increasing my weighting of the management team I'm invest investing alongside of. Um, I think I used to have more of like a, you know, more of a simple like thumbs up, thumbs down of like how good are these guys? Are they good enough to invest with or not? And I think consistently some of my worst investing experiences have come from management teams where I kind of was holding my nose um, to, to get involved. And so at least personally, that's something that I think I was underweighting in the past and I've had to grow a little bit more selective and, and who are the people running the company that I'm investing in? Um, maybe that sounds obvious, but I've at least had to increase the weight of that compared to some uh, prior prior investment decisions since I watched. Absolutely. I mean, look, it's tough, man. Look, I was just, uh, you know, not only did we hear a bunch of management teams at Ian's conference, uh, you know, Vancouver did our event at the beginning of September. And then we just, uh, I was just actually recording this on a Thursday, October 12th. I was just at Paul Andreola and, and Trevor's show at uh, the small cap discovery show yesterday. And, you know, I, it's that traditional format where you get to hear, you know, everybody do their corporate presentation for 30 minutes. And that was kind of one of my first times I've gotten to do that in a long time. Just get, just sat there and listening to, you know, every, I think I listened to like eight, eight presentations, something like that. And it, it's still, I've been doing this 12 years. It's still difficult, right? Because, you know, once you get into the one-on-ones, like that's when you get to know them a little bit better. And, you know, and you always have to have, like Ian even talked about in his presentation, you know, like one of his biases that he always has to work on is the idea of like, you know, not becoming too close or, or having management becoming friends. That is yeah. so difficult because on a human level, like you want to relate right? You want to interact. And also you just feel like from a business side of things, like, oh, like this seems obvious, right? Like yep. we want to get to know them as well as possible. And as a result, you know, you're just you're likely going to become friends, you know, in some, in some capacity. So it's, it's, it's just, this sounds obvious to everyone listening to this. And I know I sound like a broken record for now, like what, eight years of doing the podcast, but like, it's friggin' hard, dude. It, it is. Yeah. It, like sometimes you just need that reminder too. When you just sit there, you hear those presentations. Some of them are really good. Some of them are really bad, but the businesses are interesting. And that, yeah. and you have to be able to to disassociate like, all right, maybe they're just a bad presenter versus, you know, it's just, it's such a, it's the fun of it, at least for me. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. No, it's, it, that, it's one of the hardest things to quantify too, because you can only get to know management teams so well uh, starting out too. So you've got to, you got to, figure out what you're looking for and then figure out how to quantify that uh, into, you know, how far you're willing to go investing with them. So it's, it's an art. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what's your, you know, look, we're, like I said, we're talking October 12, 2023, you know, we're still in the middle of this microcap bloodbath, even though like some of the more quality names have been doing not, not too bad. I mean, I'm looking at some of the charts for some of the companies that presented yesterday, like there's about half of them that are up probably 30, 40% on the year, you know, which that's, you can't sniff, you know, we're not going to hold our nose up to that. But, you know, how, how are you approaching to markets right now? What's your criteria? Lo love to hear more there. Sure. Um, so I think if I was trying to think of like three big things that we're looking for, um, you know, it's not required, but the more quirky or off the beaten path or the less familiar the investing community is with something, that's got me interested right now. Um, 
if something is really cashed up and cash flowing a lot, that's something I'm very interested in. Um, and then just misunderstood stuff that has a catalyst, uh, that's stuff I'm very interested in. Um, I can give you a few examples. So we'll talk about cash first. Um, there's a unit corporation, ticker UNTC, um, I own this. Uh, this is a exploration and production oil and gas company. Um, objectively not a great business. You, most people that have invested in, in energy understand that you can have a really terrible experience over there. Uh, this company went bankrupt in 2020 after prices crashed during COVID. Um, wiped out their debt, reorganized, came public again. Uh, and they have just really focused on cash flow. And they have done a re remarkable job. The stock is up from single digits to today, it's about $53. Uh, they uh, have paid out $15 of dividends per share just this year. Again, this is a $53 stock. So uh, they are returning capital. They bought back 3 million of the 13 million shares they had outstanding, I think, when they came out of bankruptcy. Um, so they've been, they're doing buybacks, they're paying dividends. They have $200 million of cash sitting in the bank right now for a 500 million market cap. And they're cash flowing, you know, around a hundred to $150 million at the current curve for oil and gas and operating some drilling rigs that they own. Um, so it's not that exciting of a business. I don't think this is a future 10 bagger. I think it's just very cashed up. I think they're managing it much better than it was managed prior to uh, the bankruptcy in 2020 and it's OTC it's off the radar. Um, this one I think is at least more understood than some of the stuff I own. Like there's pitches on value investors club. It's on Microcap club. It's on Twitter and you know, a few different people are following it on there. So it's got some coverage. Um, but it's just, there's a lot of cash there and they're allocating it. Well, they're distributing it to shareholders and that's a hard way to get killed right now in, uh, what is otherwise a pretty tough market. Um, so that's one that I look at. I, I really like the, the cash flow profile there. Um, for kind of quirky stuff, uh, use the example, Amark Precious Metals. Um, Remember that these one. Are, yeah, this is one I've been involved with um, since 2020. Um, these are bullion dealer. Um, they're primarily a wholesaler of gold and silver. Uh, I ran across it a couple of months before COVID hit and my takeaway was, oh, this is a kind of company I'd really want to own if everything really starts going sideways and people are scared and they're buying gold and silver. And then like two months later, COVID's happening. And I was like, I need to be going and buying shares at Amark. This is, uh, <laughs> this is, a, seems like their ideal market environment. Um, and it was, the stock was like eight bucks a share at that time, which was pre-split. So Four adjusted now and the thing trades at 29 bucks today. Um, what, what I really like about Amark and one of the reasons I have stuck with it, I still own some, um, is they did a really good job of taking what was windfall profits and high grading their business. So they went out in the beginning of 21 and bought the largest direct-to-consumer gold and silver brand, which is JM Bullion. Um, they already had a relationship with these guys. They brought them in-house. And if you go back and look at their legacy business, it was like a half a percent margin uh, wholesale in, in good times. You know, terrible, terrible margins in this business. They went out and bought direct-to-consumer brands that, you know, you saw this stuff operating anywhere in the 5 to 10% gross margin range. Uh, so just 
went out and bought a lot of stuff that improved the, the quality of the, the earnings in their business. And, you know, people looked at it and thought, you know, this business is going to revert back to pre-COVID levels. But, you know, they've gone out and done things with their capital to try and uh, kind of build a larger moat around their business. They bought some mints um, to help control supply uh, in the industry. They bought some other brands. They made some minority investments and stuff. Um, so quirky, there's no public comps for it. Um, not a lot of people are looking at this thing. Um, it's a stock that's not really correlated to the broader market and does well in times where things are bad, which um, I think all of us want to have stuff like that that helps us ride out the, the tougher times in the market. Um, so that's been a fun one to keep up with. I, I bought a ton of it again back in March when the bank runs were happening. And you can go on their website and you can see stuff related to demand and spreads for what they own. And it was just blowing out to the upside and the stock wasn't moving for like a week or two. And I was like, oh, I, I know this business pretty well. And this is like their absolute best environment to operate in is banks are failing. People are buying gold. And that's what was happening. No one cared. Yeah, <laughs> so, I was going to say, look at that. Look at that chart for what was that? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. From like so, of, from like end of February or like beginning of March through. Yeah. Um, nice. Yep. Yeah. And we're right back where we started now. because. <laughs> yeah. Again, that started happening before the stock crash. So there was kind of a window where you started seeing like, oh, things are getting worse. Like exit stage, right? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I like stuff like that, that, you know, you got, you know, you can find things that are happening before the stock reacts. Um, it, go for it. Yeah, real quick. And, and you know, maybe you can use another example with this question because, you know, that's the goal I think of most investors. It's like they want, they want to do exactly what you're doing, right? Is like, man, I just I want to be able to find that quirky off the beaten path. Like, you know, it, do I just start with something that's just absolutely hated right now? And there's no, like that, that is, that I think about that all the time of like, yeah. all right, where, where do I go to just look, you know, cause that's the fun stuff, especially as a microcap investor is like, I want to go where it's just quirky. I want to go where it's off the beaten path. I want to go where, you know, things are either just really hated, moderately hated and try and better understand why. So what is, where do you, What's your process to, to finding that? And then also, you know, what do you, what is what are some of your sources or what do you think about, like, what's your thought process? And then, you know, what are some of your inflection points where you're finally like, all right, I'm ready to make a move on this that literally everybody else hates or sure. finds quirky or off the impact? Yeah, so I don't remember who the quote's from, but there's somebody out there I've heard say that there's no bonus points for complexity. So I think I would I would be careful to, to say that I, when I say quirky, I don't mean stuff that's really hard to understand. It's a really good point. Um, because I've tried that. Um, a great example of getting that wrong, or at least a situation that has not benefited me yet. Um, have you ever run across Wheeler Real Estate Investment Trust? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. WHLR, right? Yeah. Everyone's yep. favorite 3 million market cap with $750 <laughs> million of other securities outstanding. Yeah. Um, Incredibly complex capital stack, messy situation. I have spent a lot of time on that thing, trying to figure out ways to make money off of it, and I have gotten nowhere. Um, it is complex and has not benefited me. I hope that someday there's going to be an obvious trade and I'll know what it is based on the time I've spent with that. But man, um, complex and just absolute waste of my time so far. Uh, but yeah, I don't know anything with it right now. I just track it and I'm like, this thing has been an absolute disaster in the public markets, but maybe someday I will benefit from understanding it. Um, so 
that's one where, yeah, complex, not worth my time, um, or at least not yet. Um, so yeah, I think I like stuff like that. Um, but I just have to remind myself that again, I'm not going to get any, I'm not going to be rewarded for really understanding a complex situation if there isn't any catalyst for it becoming less complex or other people figuring it out easily because that usually stocks don't become much better understood on their own. Um, just in, impromptu moment, that doesn't happen. Um, I think one that one I did benefit from last year, uh, there's a funny other oil and gas company called uh, W&T Offshore. Uh, they do Gulf of Mexico uh, production. Um, these guys are funny. They're kind of the opposite of unit in terms of like really conservatively run really like, I mean, these guys are more of their, uh, EMP cowboy, uh, types that you're, you're looking for, uh, in that market. Um, they, they went and bought some more assets and the bank that, that lend them the money forced them to hedge a bunch of their production when they bought them to try and lock in some level of certainty around getting repaid. And they didn't like that. So they went out and bought calls on natural gas to try and offset their hedging book because um, they didn't want to not get upside price exposure when they were hedging their natural gas, like under three bucks um, in 2021. Well, then last year, natural gas pricing is just blowing out to the upside. And these guys are a producer that went and bought calls on the thing they're producing. So I think they spent like $10 million buying the, the call book that they, and they ended up flipping it for like $200 million uh, after the fact. And it was an asset that didn't really make, didn't really show up on their balance sheet in a way that, you know, because they had all these other things offsetting it, it wasn't really there um, in terms of, you, you would just like pull up the financials and be like, oh, wow, these guys have a huge like asset that they're going to go monetize. Um, but there was some refinancing risk around the company and they had these calls that were going to allow them to refinance. And so when they monetized them, all of a sudden refinancing wasn't difficult. They were able to get new debt. Everything was fine. Uh, and the stock really exploded to the upside. Um, and it was just, you know, it wasn't that complex, but it was quirky. And if you weren't looking for it, you missed it. Um, so that was one where, uh, again, just kind of putting it in the back the uh, basket of, oh, these guys have huge exposure to upside of natural gas and natural gas starts blowing out. I'm going to go buy some because it did. And the stock didn't do follow right away. Uh, it played catch up. Um, yeah. So weird stuff like that. Again, playing in the smaller space, you, you find things like that. Um, so yeah, trying to find weird, but not too complex. That makes sense. Uh, makes total sense real quick. Uh, just, Wanting to be totally sure, I was not a shareholder in Wheeler and not a shareholder in it was WT, right? Correct. WTI, yeah. WTI, that's right. Got it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fun, right? Because on some on in some ways, like that's why we go on social media. That's why we're part of all these clubs, like because you know sometimes somebody might inspire you to say to start looking maybe maybe not necessarily at that one company in particular, but maybe just a a swath or that that one sector or that one industry. And then you kind of go down the rabbit hole and maybe you find a different opportunity that meets your investing style better maybe than that one company that 
had been talking about it. So maybe let's go down that road as like, all right, you know, bottom up versus kind of uh, top down type investing when you're trying to find, you know, the quirks and the off the beaten stuff. I, that's the focus of today, right? Like, look, let's yeah. just let's just go there. I mean, look, you talk PLCE at a, you know, at our at this cop, like let's we're you know everybody was like, oh okay, like here we go. So you know, love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, top down versus yeah. bottom up type of type of research process. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, my idea generation process, uh, it really does look a lot like just having a, a list of names that I try to stay close to and knowing where, when things happen that should make me pay attention. Um, children's place, like you mentioned, PLC, it's something I own right now. Um, I've got a friend who used to work at a retail hedge fund and has known these guys for 15 years. And so, he was the one kind of beating me over the head with this one, like, "Hey, you really gotta pick this back up. They're they have an opportunity here. You know, this is this is your kind of stock." And so having you know, one just having stuff you're familiar with, and then having other people you talk to who know business as well, um, and can kind of help you know remind you like, "Hey, this is the time to be looking at this thing." Um, so children's place, um, yeah, the pitch is out there. It's on my Twitter. It's I think Microcap Club's Twitter put it out there about a week ago. Um, you can hear my 10 minute, um, riff on that from the, their summit, um, minute yeah. com- comedy bit. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, they, I mean, they sell kids clothes. It's not that complex of a business again. Um, but I think if you pull up their financials, I think a lot of people would rightfully glance at them and be like, why would you buy this business right now? The debt's blown out to the upside. The margins are shrinking. Like the stock price has gotten hammered. Like this thing looks like it's going to file for bankruptcy in like 12 months. And I understand that's what you would see if you looked at it. Um, I think people don't realize, like, yes, there's been a lot of retailers that are struggling right now. There's a lot of guys who screwed up inventory during the post-COVID, you know, bullwhip, return to normal, everyone trying to figure all that out. Um, Children's Place was hit harder than most due to their exposure to cotton pricing and their, their freight hit that they took in 2022. Um, so if you read the company's transcripts, you'll see they had $125 million of extra expense in 2022 related to cotton and freight that showed up in their P&L and blew out their working capital. And But you can track both of those things, and they're back to normal. Cotton's come back down. Freight's come back down. They're working through their old expensive inventory, which is suppressed margins. And all of a sudden, like the business, the margins are back to where they should be. And they told you that they're going to earn 5 bucks a share in the second half of this year. And I think... They're going to guide to something, you know, five or greater next year um, for the full year for the business. And I don't think the stock will keep trading at 25 bucks if they're going to earn $10 a share over the next 18 months. Yeah, I could be wrong, but this is a business that generated a hundred plus million dollars of free cash flow almost every year from 2009 to 2020 until COVID hit. Um, it's been pretty steady. They seem to be run fairly well. They take excess cash flow and they do buybacks. Uh, they have some other levers they can pull to improve the business. I mean, they because their online sales grew so fast during COVID, they had to bring a third party in to help them out with warehousing and uh, fulfillment on their online orders. And they've got a project under underway to expand their distribution center that they own in Alabama. Once that's expanded, they can bring it back in-house. They can reduce inventory again. They'll improve margins. Self-help, and I, I like stuff like that where you don't really see that in the numbers. If you're not paying attention, you don't see it coming. But I think and the industry can get worse, and they can be okay because they have levers to pull that will help them out. Um, 
the leverage looks bad. I think they've got into it being back down to about $200 million in net debt at the end of the year, even though it was close to $400 million at the end of Q2. Um, they seasonally have a bunch of sales in Q3, so that's going to help with them finally working through all that. Uh, but it looks bad right now on a screener. So uh, I think that's why it's misunderstood. I think retail is not a very loved sector right now, um, but I think these guys have the levers to pull that they can save themselves and go make a bunch of money. So I think they can generate a lot of cash whether or not the economy is good. I think it's pretty interesting. Very cool. That, no, thanks for the the quick wrap on that too. You know, it was funny when you're doing your um your presentation. You know, I was focused more on the like the business itself because you know, I look, I got two kids, right? Almost four and almost two. And yep. I, I at the time I hadn't heard of children. I mean, look, my wife. I'm not trying to put out the <laughs> you know the gender roles or anything like that. But in our household, my wife happens to buy most of the the clothes for the kids. And so, I, I, in my mind, I was like, wait, why do I not know about children's plays? Like Carter's is that's always the first thing that comes up. You know, yep. and like to be fair, like it's pretty decently priced and it fits my kids for a very long time. So, like in terms of just like competitive analysis, when you think about children's place, and I didn't think we were gonna do like a full children's play pop, but we could do that too. Yeah. Um like what's what's the fundamental difference? You know, I just going through their website, looking at all the stuff, like what's the fundamental difference between like children's place and their brands versus a Carter's? Sure. Um Carter's is a little bit higher price point in the market than children's place is. Uh, they over-index in the Northeast and West Coast. Um, so Carter's has more exposure to, uh, I guess, just in general investing types. Um, Carter's is focused on their stores as a customer acquisition channel. Children Place is not. Um, so the quality of the stores is better at Carter's. Um, you can check your local Google reviews if you doubt me on that. Um, uh-huh. Overall. Yeah, no, Children's Place is focused on customer acquisition through their online channel. Um, they target millennial moms. So if you're not a millennial mom, there's a good chance you haven't gotten their ads. Um, or unless you're me and you've gone to their website to check prices and stuff, and now you get them all the time. Um, but yeah, they're, they're really focused on the digital customer acquisition. Um, they're not as focused on trying to get your grandma to come in and buy buy stuff for the grandkids. Uh, it's just a, it's a different business model. Um, if you look at uh, kind of... One of the ways that uh, I've been keeping an eye on them has been looking at their same store sales versus Carter's, um, just, you know, because that's trying to think about, all right, like things have been crazy coming out of COVID. Is there evidence that they are losing market share, that customers are choosing Carter's over them? You can go pull that up. Uh, they've been very similar uh, coming out of that. So I don't think there's any real issues here of losing customers. Um, Carter's is focused on wholesale more. They're in Walmart, they're in Target, they're in Kohl's. Uh, Children's Place isn't in any of those stores. Um, they do some wholesale into Amazon, but most of their sales are through their stores and about 40% are through their website. Uh, so again, it's, it's more online oriented. They're not focused on the brick and mortar nearly as much. Uh, they have a smaller store base than Carter's. So they have a different target audience. Um, they have a lower price point. I've recently had people asking me, oh, is like Sheen or Timu or some of these you know, Chinese um, e-commerce businesses that have really blown up here in the U.S. in the last few months, uh, you know, those are threat to Children's Place. But you can go compare prices between their websites. Like Children's Place is competitive on pricing with them. Uh, it's like, oh, you can get your pair of kids' jeans for 12 bucks on Timu or you know, $13.99 on Children's Place or something like that. Uh, it's not uh, – they're not getting undercut on price there the way that some of the higher um, – U.S. labels might be so. You know, that's another thing that I'm keeping an eye on. You know, maybe Team New starts to take market share. I don't think so as much. Um, they have <laughs> they had some 
some quality, uh, both with like chemicals and lead and asbestos and stuff that, you know, I think there's a less of a chance people are going to want to buy that and put that on their kids. But um, I don't know. That's just me. So. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I prefer not to put like chemicals and lead on my children and not on their clothes. That would be that would be ideal. Um, you know what? Two questions. The Jimboree acquisition was that was that the whole idea around that was because they're trying to target that millennial parent? Because I mean, look, we I'm 34. Like I, you know, my parents just take me to Jimboree. Like I didn't even know they had a freaking clothing line until your presentation. I was like, are you? I, was shocked. I was like, yeah. I think I, I was like, I, I, Jim Barry, like what, like where, where's the gym? Like it's gotten taken over by my gym out here. Right. In, in LA. <laughs> so like, I, you know, when I heard that, I was like, Oh, Jim Barry, they got clothes now. Okay. This is interesting. Yeah. So Jim Barry and children's place were targeting a very similar customer base. Um, they had, uh, they were competing on price in 2018, 2019 while Jim Barry was really struggling and children's place made the decision to essentially, compete them out of business. And they did that. They filed for bankruptcy uh, in 2019 and Children's Place bought the brand for about $75 million. So uh, that's one of the other things that I like here is that if you're, you know, if you're like me, you pull up a business, you look at how they're doing and then you pull up 2019 and you try to figure out how much this thing changed during COVID and try to figure out if I'm get run over by a COVID winner or a loser somehow here. Um, Children's Place's 2018, 2019 weren't that good. Uh, those years were they were under pressure from Jimbery liquidating and they're fairly similarly sized businesses. Uh, and so them both discounting and kind of competing towards the bottom there was not great for them. Um, so they did have they did have some competitive pressure there. Gross margin was down a couple hundred basis points. Um, and so you can look at that and again, without doing any industry research and think like, oh, this business was already declining going into COVID. It's like, well, it had a competitive pressure in 18 and 19. They took it out, you know. Something else could pop up. I mean, this is a tough industry. I'm not, I don't want to pretend that uh, other things can't go wrong. But I think I like stuff like that where there's even more of an explanation for like, hey, like 19 wasn't that great of a year for these guys. You know, that's that may not be the baseline. 2020 probably would have been a much better year for them ex-COVID. But we'll never know because COVID happened. So, you know, just to kind of wrap up on, on Children's Place, you know, you kind of alluded to this. But what would you say is your primary thesis where, you know, all right. You know, this is why I'm going to be holding the like, what's your ideal holding period for this? And what would you say is that main thesis would be for ultimately like, all right, time to sell. Like, I got what I expected out of this. Sure. Um, so I would say for Children's Place, you got a stock that's trading in about $300 million market cap. And I still think that normalized free cash flow for this business is around $100 million. They have $200 million in net debt by the end of the year if they hit their guidance. Um I think that's an acceptable level of debt for a company like this. Um, they may pay it down a little bit more. So yeah, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, all right, for a company that has historically done buybacks with their excess cash flow, you know, 33% yield on equity doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So I'm looking for that to get back to more of a normalized 10% range for these guys. Um, that happens one of two ways. It happens by finding out that free cash flow is going to be lower than $100 million. In which case, you know, I've got to readjust my expectations for stock price. And the other way is finding out that the stock price shouldn't be $25. And they start doing buybacks and it has to respond accordingly. So, you know, one of those two things will happen next year. Either I'll find out I'm wrong about cash flow or people that were selling the stock at $25 will find out that they were wrong about the business being permanently impaired. So, 
we'll see. <laughs> we shall see. So another question I wanted to ask you today, you know, yesterday I, I was at, again, I was at the conference yesterday. So kind of was like barely scrolling through and didn't really see the update, but I guess uh, Tesla, I saw you, you posted about this, about, uh, you know, uh, you know, Expel, which is our, uh, our, you know, our beacon of hope in the microcap space in terms of like cold microcaps that made it out of here, at least of the last, you know, seven, eight years, you know, it, uh, what, what was this news that Tesla is now offering wraps for the model three Y for, uh, something, what is that like about 7,500, eight grand. And yep. of course that's Expel's business. So love to get your comment on that. I mean, that's, uh, that definitely, definitely Expel Twitter was going nuts yesterday. So I want to let, let's hear about it. Yeah, no, there's a lot of takes on that. And I'll quickly, quickly note that I know less about Expel than a lot of other guys on Twitter. So, um, I, I, I was going to say, I didn't, I couldn't get, I didn't, uh, you know, listen, Jay, Jason did this for the long haul. He's probably okay. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, he's got a tweet out there on it. So definitely, definitely check that out. Um, You know, my understanding is Tesla starting to do this at two of their, two of their facilities. Um, The fear here was always that there was going to be some level of auto competition with, with Expel. Um, The belief is that they have a strong enough moat in their relationships with dealers and suppliers that uh, they weren't going to be able to be disrupted. And so the idea that Tesla is coming for them on this product uh, scared some people and the stock sold off 20% yesterday. Um, I think my understanding is their moat is probably stronger than Tesla having it at two facilities. I think the fear here is more related to what does this mean for their growth? Do other people try to do this? How successful is it going to be? Um, someone's finally actually coming for them, I guess would be the, uh, the fear. Um, they put out an 8k this morning, uh, which was worded to suggest that Tesla is 5% of their business. I, the way it's worded might make you think that it's more than 5% of their business and they try to very carefully select words to make it. So it sounds like five, I'm not sure. Um, I looked at that and you know, that, that's one that's well known in the micro cap land. Um, it's a little bit less off the beaten path than I would like. So, you know, watching all that happen yesterday, I was like, I don't know this business well enough to go buy some stock and know that this isn't a big deal or short it. Cause I know this really is, I'm staying out of it for now. Um, I will say I heard Ryan, the CEO, speak at the Microcap Club Summit, and see, he seems like the kind of CEO that I would want to run through a wall for. So, thousand you know, percent. Yep. If there if there's somebody that you wanted to lead your company through next round of Tesla competition, I think he'd be the guy. So, I I would not want to bet against uh, Ryan Pape over there. So, I think they've got they've got a good guy at the helm to manage through whatever this round of fear ends up being. Absolutely. No, that's a good, that's a good place. I'll, I'll, I'll get Jason at some point. That'd be kind of fun to do. A, well, I don't know if fun is the right word, but you know, it'd be interesting to get a quick take on uh, some of this, uh, you know, Oh no, an, a, the, an existential crisis here, you know? So uh, by the way, full disclosure, not a shareholder in Tesla or expelled David, just quick disclosure, neither. No, nothing. Very cool. Not talking either. You know, so getting back to our talk on like quirky, off the beaten path, all that kind of stuff, you know, kind of to close out that conversation. I mean, look, yeah. we're in a, we're in a micro cap, small cap environment that is still, you know, uh, just uh, for lack of a better term, it's just, it's just been rough, right? It's yeah. crap. It's crap. You know, so there's a lot of different off the beaten path quirky. Listen, I'm at this conference yesterday here. I'm pulling up. I got, what is this? I got a, uh, you know, aerospace defense and electronics. We got, uh, you know, uh, uh, concrete farming products manufacturer. There's a couple of energy services. Oh, look, a cannabis 
uh, you know, proprietary extraction technology. You know, look, it, the trust company. Yeah, of course, everybody. Yeah, I'm sure everybody realized Atlas was there presenting yesterday, not a shareholder. Um, you know, mobile internet of things. Like, there's so there's so many different roads to go down right now in microcap, sure. and it's just kind of trying to pick which rabbit hole you want to actually dedicate your focus to, and not just get lost in something that maybe you know, isn't really, isn't that interesting right now. So like, how do you truly discern from, especially right now? Like, okay, this is where I want to allocate my time. This is where like interesting, but I'll, maybe I'll say that for a fun weekend read. Ooh. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, I'm definitely speaking, you know, I mentioned earlier that I've started to put more focus on companies that have, uh, good management teams. I think another area that I've learned to focus more on is companies that have specific improvement coming down the line. Uh, I've had a horrible time, like most micro cap investors, trying to catch falling knives when you look at a business and say, oh, things are going to get really bad here before they get good again. But everyone knows that. So it's priced in. And it's usually not priced in, uh, especially in this environment. I don't think I don't think a lot of people have patience right now for a bad quarter or for any kind of deceleration in the results. Uh, so, you know, depending on your time horizon, depending on what you own and why you own it, you know, I've like long-term taxable gains are better. It is great to be involved with something where you know it really well and you're not worried about a specific quarter. Um, but that doesn't always mean you want to just sit there and take a huge drawdown because uh, you know, it's coming. <laughs> so, I do my best to step out of the way of, of freight trains when I see them coming. Um, I thought, I think Children's Place is a great example of one where I've owned it this year and just thought market is going to see all this stuff that's coming down in the second half. They're going to earn a ton of money. Things are going to improve. Like this stock's a steal at 30 bucks. And then all of a sudden it was 15 bucks in May. I'm like, All right, I guess it wasn't a steal at 30 bucks or it wasn't as much as it is now. Um, so I got that one wrong. I thought that like they're gonna they're guided to this, the improvements right there. I don't want to wait and have to buy it at 50. Well, I could have bought it at 15. Who you know, learned that the hard way. But uh, yes, anything where where I can see clear path to to improving results or um, growth, new opportunities, improving balance sheets, whatever it is, um, I'm definitely definitely spending more time on that and not trying to estimate. Oh, things can only get so bad for ticker XYZ because, you know, like I said, with Children's Place, uh, that's been one of the stark reminders. Um, we talked about Amark earlier. They uh, they had a really good uh, window of business earlier this year, and it's right back where it was where I was buying it in March because <laughs> the window was good. It closed and <laughs> everyone left. So um, getting out of the way of stuff that's decelerating has definitely definitely been one of the themes of this year, I think. Absolutely. No, that was, that's some good stuff right there. So, you know, one, one more name I wanted to ask you about because it's actually shown up in our index. I think two, yeah. two out of the four quarter, two out of the three or four quarters so far in 2023, uh, just based on, per, you know, some of our proprietary for performance, uh, was a uh, national cinemedia, you know, you, oh, I, yeah. Yeah, you you uh, you wrote that up on Seeking Alpha, you know, I mean, look, the, the theater space is, it's just, it's super interesting right now. I just, just from, just from an interest perspective, like trying to better understand like where entertainment industry is going, like there's a clear bet here on peak TV being done. Right. And now yeah. that, you know, maybe some of that 
that intellectual capacity is now geared more towards, you know, creating, you know, more quality movies versus TV that just doesn't make anybody any money, you know? Um, So just curious as to your thesis on national cinemedia. I'm not a shareholder, but just, just interested in your thesis and then also your overall take on the industry. Sure. Uh, That's a really fun one. I don't own it right now. Um, I really wish I had held it longer coming out of bankruptcy. Um, Very interesting stock. So these guys, First, hat tip to management. Uh, before they filed for bankruptcy uh, this year, uh, last year they pulled off one of the more interesting things I've seen in in the small cap space, where they went out into the open market and bought back some of their secured bonds. Uh, so this was really cool. If you figured this out, you made a bunch of money earlier this year. Uh, essentially, there was an upsea structure at the company where they have like a whole company that was owned partially. Uh, by shareholders and partially by like AMC and Regal and Cinemark. And then there's like this, the actual advertising business that they're all, you know, that has the debt and things like that. So the, the subsidiary is what filed for bankruptcy, but you're a shareholder in the Upsea company at, that owns secured debt in the company that just filed for bankruptcy. So because they bought their own secured debt at the Holdco, and when they filed, you as a shareholder were a senior secured creditor of the company that filed for bankruptcy and not just a common shareholder of a company that went bankrupt. So you had a really funny scenario where the subordinated debt essentially got zeroed. Um, they got a few dollars, but essentially zeroed. And the common shareholders got interest in the new company because they were senior secured debt holders. Um, so that was an example of complexity where it really paid to understand what was going on because <laughs> instead of the, the equity being a zero, like, um, uh, you would expect in a filing like that, um, if you bought shares in NCMI, you continue to own shares in NCMI post reorg. Um, and this is a business that historically was run with about a billion dollars of debt sitting on it. And then they came out with a clean $350 million market cap, uh, and, practically no debt, um, trading at about seven times their forecast EBITDA for the year. So very interesting little business. They had to renegotiate some of their advertising leases. Uh, what they do is run ads uh, before movies at the big threes movie theaters and then some other smaller uh, cinemas. And they kind of have a monopoly on the industry. So it's a fairly high quality business. It's fairly high margin. They've been... Uh, they were able to run with so much debt because it was a very predictable and seemingly stable business. And then COVID happened, all the theaters shut down and these guys ran into problems. So yes, all that backstory come out seven times, no debt. Um, the real question there is, all right, is this a dying industry? And not only are theaters dying, but you're also trying to figure out are, you know, is the way that theaters are being interacted with dying? Um, you and I can go to a movie theater and buy tickets ahead of time on our phone for the most part and reserve a seat, depending on what theaters are around you. Some do this, some don't, but it's become more and more of a trend. Um, so there's people that look at that and say, selling ads into a theater, if it's going to be have reserve seating, everyone's going to walk in right about the time the ads are done. That's not like that business is going to die because people aren't going to be sitting there for 30 minutes so they can get good seats. That. <laughs> I totally, I don't know. I, I just, I always like to think from personal experience, like how, like what my user experience would be. And right. I, I don't know, like, 
don't know if you're like me. It's I, I, I like seeing the previews. I mean, I get it. Okay, you're talking about like before the previews even start, right? That's where the ads come in, you know. But get you out your local car dealers and North yeah. and stuff are like running ads, and yeah. So I mean, there's a mix. They still have some stuff in yeah. there. They have like a marquee ad spot that they usually put in there with the trailers. So you know, this isn't to say this business is going away. Um, so much as is it going to be nearly as good of a business as it's been previously? Um, and so you know, buying something that's an effective monopoly of seven times earnings with no debt, like there are worse ideas. So <laughs> I think that that was what made the opportunity interesting coming out of bankruptcy. Um, and it quickly doubled out of the, with the share price that um, they were sitting at uh, when they came out. Um, and you had the Barbie Oppenheimer weekend that was like theaters are back, you know, they're not dead, everything's fine. And so then you got a big wave of that. And then the writers went on strike and like, there might be no movies next year. And <laughs> all of a sudden theaters were not back. So it's a really interesting one. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, so I, I think that's an interesting uh, dive for anybody that wants to say like, hey, this might be a really high quality business trading at a price that historically is much cheaper than it's been. Uh, and and there could be that tailwind of peak T, like, I don't know, I listened to uh, The Town, uh, that podcast a lot. Yeah, I don't know if you heard that one with Matthew Bellany. And they're, you know, they've done a few episodes about the idea of peak TV being done. And the whole correlation there is like, okay, like I said, you know, there's some of the, you know, there is this 10 year period here where the best writers and best directors were like, hey, the real money's in TV, you know, like because these streamers are just paying top dollar for the best names, the best writers, all that. We don't care these development deals and just spending indiscriminately so that they can have them, you know, under their roof and only writing for their street. Like they're not going to yeah. do that anymore. Like those are done. Those days are yeah. completely over. So I, I wonder if the pendulum then shifts back to movies. And like, as a result, like the audience is saying, well, there's no good TV, like, and it's now at the theaters. All right. Maybe it's time that, you know, we start going back to the theater. But then again, there's also the idea of like, all right, well, well, I think the streamers would probably end up still, you know, there's like that 45 day grace, but even Disney is like uh, extended that yeah. right? Like, it's, yeah. they used to have the 45 days and then the movie is available on Disney. It's like, they're, they're definitely not doing that anymore. Yeah. So no. And that's, again, there's just a lot of moving parts in that world right now. I mean, that's a business that got, you know, the, the way that COVID impacted there um, with the streamers, the movie theaters, uh, there's a ton going on there. And so I think for anybody that spent a lot of time there and kind of understood the implications of what was going on with that business, you could have made a lot of money. I think you still might be able to, I mean, if, if NCMI is a, is a gross stock and not a cigar butt coming right. out of this, this filing, you know, and trading it seven times, I mean, they've got an opportunity to do some really cool things with capital allocation. I mean, they, if they flip a buyback on and start taking out some of these lenders that are in there that might not be national shareholders, I mean, that's what happened with unit corporation. That's one of the things I loved about those guys was, you know, they, they filed for bankruptcy. They had all these guys in there that, you know, owned the bonds and weren't national shareholders. And so they just came to them and were like, Hey, we'll buy you out of your stock. You know, they understood where the business was going. They were able to get a bunch of blocks off of people before, you know, the, the earnings power of the business really became apparent. And I think NCMI might be able to do something similar, uh, but we'll see. I don't know. Uh, but I think that's a really fun one. Absolutely. I'll, I'll definitely, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and get, in, uh, hopefully I can get a, a, a due diligence interview with their CEO. That'd be really cool. Because um, at a minimum, just to hear about the industry and hear their takes, like that's, 
I mean, I'm sure they're going to be bullish, no doubt, right? Like they, have, they probably have to be, but you know, you never know. I, I could maybe I could pull a little bit out of them and be like, "Come on, man!" Like, nervous a little bit, you know? Is there a little headwindy shit there? But um, all right, dude. I think, dude, we covered a lot, man. I mean, uh, any final thoughts, final takes, any on individual names, just investing in general, micro caps, life. I don't know. You know, uh, close us out here, man. Oh man, uh, it's a lot of fun. I think. One of the things I really enjoy about investing is it's a team sport yep. uh, for the most part. I like meeting guys like you, you know, out at the uh, Michael Cat Club Summit, getting a chance to come on here and talk some names. Um, there's a lot of good people um, to swap ideas with. You get, uh, you learn a lot of stuff. Um, I'm a, I think you can be a continuous learner in this world. Um, and especially in investing, you get opportunities to, uh, to see what works for people, what doesn't. Um, you get to see, you know, you can listen to a podcast where some guy comes on. He's like, let me tell you why Warren Buffett's whole career was luck. Like, oh, wow. Okay. Like, <laughs> that's a take. Like, there, there's so many different ways to do this. And people have all sorts of ways they make money. You can learn so much. Um, I think for me, it's just been fun uh, finding what works for me, finding stocks that uh, I can get comfortable with, uh, finding uh, great people. You get to know really cool companies you never knew existed. You know, you find yourself walking through a store and seeing something like, oh, I own like shares in that. You know, I didn't know they existed until this year. <laughs> um, just fun, fun stuff. I really enjoy getting to know these companies, getting to know management teams, getting to know other investors. Um, and I'm really enjoying running my own fund. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me on. Always happy to talk small micro caps and uh, look forward to catching up again sometime. 100%. Well, before I let you go, where can folks uh, go and uh, find find out more information about Kingdom Capital Advisors as well as follow you on social media? Sure. Um, so I've got a Twitter account, which is at Kingdom Cap ADV. Uh, I'm on Seeking Alpha a decent amount. That was kind of the, the first platform I was able to get some ideas published on and get my start there. Um, so, put, so I still put some theses up there. Um, I hang out on Microcap Club, so shout out to them. Um, if you can go set, submit an idea or pay pay to get access to that, it's a really good community of, of like-minded Microcap investors. Um, and then my website is kingdomcapitaladvisors.com. We've got our fun letters up there and some of our prior, you know, different media stuff we've done. So if you want to learn more about us, uh, those are all great places to go. Very cool. Well, David, thanks so much for joining me here today. Really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. Look forward to our next update, man. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks, man. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast.